Well, good morning to everybody. It's good to have you all here in church today, uh, here at this worship community that we call The Well at First Methodist Mansfield. If we haven't met before, my name is Johnny. And whether you're upstairs in the cafe down here in the chapel or joining us later online in the week, uh, it's good to be here with you. We're in week two of our series called Changed Lives, Changing Lives. We call this series that because we believe that Jesus is in the life-changing business. And we, as the church, are called to do the same thing. And you see in that video there with, with Kathy um, a sense of what the heart of this series really is. It's about this work that we share together as a family of faith. See, our ministry together is a, is a totally self-funded ministry. That's not just money, that's time and effort it's totally self-funded. Everything that we do, we do together. You and I all participate in this, and our shared sacrifice together is the fuel that God uses to bring about life change in each and every one of us, the people that are around us, and in the world around us. It's something that we are invested in together. And we're absolutely committed to this idea here that every dollar that we give, every hour that we serve, Every talent that we have, every gift that's invested towards achieving this goal, we hope that it reaches its maximum potential. And that's what we're doing here in this series is orienting ourselves around that vision and that mission so that we can maximize that potential. And it's also about the deep life change that we experience. You see that reflected in, in Kathy's story. If you don't know Kathy, uh, she is fun and, and funny and amazing and she, she literally does everything in this church. I don't know if you got a sense of that in, in the video. She is everywhere. Something we didn't share, I would love, love to share, is that um, we had some of our lead staff gather um, when Pastor Jim got here, and he was talking to them, interviewing them, finding out about their ministry, and he had asked them a question about who are like the top five, ten uh, volunteers in your uh, ministry area that you just could not do without they just, they, they help make your ministry run. They have a huge, significant impact. And almost every single person that Jim talked to listed Kathy in that list. She's literally everywhere. She, she is amazing. And uh, just so thankful for stories like her, a life like hers that's been changed by the grace of God. Stories like hers and stories like Kyle's that we heard last week are perfect examples of that life change that happens, that takes place within us because of the grace of God and because of the work of the church. I firmly believe that the church is the hope of the world. Sometimes I look around and I feel like um, the world has lost faith in the church to be that. But I firmly believe that the church is the hope of the world, which is why I invest a significant amount of my time here, why I've chosen to do ministry here, because I believe in the work of the church. It's God's vessel. Jesus uh, specifically called the church to carry on this work of salvation that he began, the work of changing lives and changing the world. And because of that, because I believe, and we believe here that the church is the hope of the world, because we're so committed to that, this series we want to explore these four questions that help us remain focused on our mission so that we can achieve it. With excellence. Those four uh, questions are this What do we do? How do we do it? What is required? And what 
does success look like? We believe that no other organization on this earth should be more committed to excellence, should be more committed to effectiveness in, sh- in achieving their mission than the church. And so we ask these four questions to keep us focused on that mission, to gain clarity around the answers to those questions so that we can be the hope of the world that we have been called to be. Jesus is in the business of changing lives. Like I said before, we're the church. We, are, as the church, are called to do the same. We are called to be deeply committed followers of Christ to continue Christ's work. So last week, that's the question that we answered. What do we do? We continue Christ's work of changing lives. This week, we're going to answer the question, how do we do it? Or more specifically, how are lives changed? Like, how, do li- how does life change actually happen? So if you brought your Bible with, with you today, we're actually going to be in two different verses. So don't panic. It's going to be cool. Uh, we're going to do this together. Two places in the Bible. So if you are an old school Bible user, you have your old analog Bible here, you blew the dust off it and brought it to, to church with you today, uh, it's going to be a lot easier for you because you can do that thing where you stick your finger in there and then flip back and forth. Uh, so if you uh, got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn or click to Matthew chapter 22. And James chapter 2, both in the New Testament. One is the very first book in the New Testament. One is near the back, right after Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have blue ones in each of our spaces uh, that you can use today. If you're using that blue Bible, uh, Matthew 22 can be found on 1539, and James 2 can be found on 1881. This question that we're exploring today, how does life change happen? How are lives changed Uh, is one of the most misunderstood components of the Christian life, I think. How exactly does our life change when we're involved with the church, when we invite Christ into our life? What does that look like? How does one move from a life of worry and a life of fear, uh, a a life of restlessness, of uh, reckless decision-making, self-absorption, short-sighted decisions, out-of-control behavior. How does one move from that life to a life of peace, a life of kindness and, and patience, a life of joy, a life of hope and goodness and love? How exactly does that happen? I used to think it had a lot to do with believing all the right things. I used to think that there was this uh, special prayer that if you said the words properly at church camp and I started to understand all the right doctrines of faith, then that's when life change would happen. Those are really important aspects of our life and our faith life. But what I come to find out over the course of my life is that though I found answers to the questions I had about my faith, that didn't necessarily lead to life change. Just because I understood more fully uh, the scriptures, just because I understood more fully what it meant to be a Christian, just because I was able to put some of the pieces together in my mind didn't necessarily translate to real life change. Most of the people that I know in life that have made mistakes, that have have deep regrets, uh, that have even walked down really dark paths in their lives and would might call their lives ruined, people that I know that have done that are Christian people. And now why is that? Well, part of it's because we're human. We're flawed beings. We make mistakes. We do that. But the other part, I think, is what we're going to get at here today is that 
if it's just about believing the right things, if it's just about knowing what we need to know about our faith, then we might miss out on that true, deep change. There's a guy named Marcus Borg. He's a professor, a theologian, an author, and he writes this book called The Heart of Christianity, Rediscovering a Life of Faith. And in that book, he writes this. He says, that Christian faith is about belief is a rather odd notion when you think about it. It suggests that what God really cares about is the belief in our heads, as if believing the right things is what God is most looking for. As if having correct beliefs is what will save us. And if you have incorrect beliefs, that you might be in trouble. It's remarkable to think that God cares so much about beliefs. You uncomfortable yet? He goes on. Moreover, when you think about it, faith as belief is relatively impotent. It's relatively powerless. You can believe all the right things and still be in bondage. You can believe all the right things and still be miserable. You can believe all the right things and still be relatively unchanged. Believing a set of claims to be true has very little transforming power. You can believe all the right things and still be relatively unchanged. That is unsettling <laughs> for me when I read that. Because me, in, in my Western post-enlightenment mind, you know, my main goal in my faith is to understand it. To be able to answer the questions that people might pose to me, people that might not consider themselves people of faith, that might question my faith. Me, the ultimate goal is to be able to answer those questions. To be able to understand fully in my heart and in my mind why I call Jesus Lord and why I come to church week after week. And all those things are important for sure, but is that it? Is that the most important? Is that of the highest value as a Christian? This is an unsettling notion, and yet for me it resonates so deeply, as I'm sure it does with many of you. You hear these words and it can be unsettling, but something about it makes sense. That yeah, just believing a set of claims isn't necessarily transformative. 2,000 years prior to Marcus Borg, there was a guy, uh, his name was James, he was the brother of Jesus, so he had a little bit of a head start in this faith thing. Um, but he was asking these very same questions. There was this huge belief system that was set up uh, in the Jewish faith and that was uh, inherited by the Christian faith in many ways. And, and he was asking a lot of these exact same questions, troubled with this notion of, of having beliefs, but is that it? Is that all there is? And so we're going to look here in James chapter 2. It's the first one we're going to look at. That's the one on 1881. Uh, it's a pretty famous passage of Scripture. It's my favorite, actually. Um, if you've never read uh, a book of the Bible in its entirety, James is a really great place to start. It's only five chapters long. It's packed full of really great stuff. But for us today, we're just going to peek in here uh, just at chapter 2 uh, for just a second. We're going to start in verse 14. James asks, what good is it? That's a good question. It's a question a lot of us are asking. It's a question uh, Marcus Borg is asking. I think it's a question a lot of our young people are asking in church today. 
that the world outside the church is asking, maybe many of you are asking, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. You might have heard it this way, maybe memorized it this way, faith without works is dead. It's a powerful statement by James. I mean, it is an unsettling statement in and of itself, especially for people that really hold in high value understanding and, and, and belief. James wants to challenge us in this, but here's where we run into trouble a little bit as believers. This is where we run into trouble because we begin to hear James's words, and there seems to be something discordant within us and the things that we know about our faith. Remember I said this is one of the most misunderstood components of our Christian life together. Because if you've been in church for a little while, if you've read the, the Bible at all, you hear uh, in your head as James says these things, you hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans when he says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You might not have known that was Paul. You might not have read Romans. But if you've been around a church, you've probably heard that. We are justified by faith alone. It's not by works. We don't earn God's grace. That's why they call it grace. So what is this? how do we reconcile Paul and James here? You might remember the words of the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, what? believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not whosoever works in him. Whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. How do we reconcile these notions? Is the Bible contradicting itself here? On the one hand, we, earn, we don't earn God's grace. It's given freely. And if we so much as believe in Jesus, we inherit eternal life. And yet James is over here saying, if you have faith but you don't have any works, like what good is that faith? Do you really have faith at all? What we come to understand about James, it's different than what Paul and, and the Gospel of John are saying here. Paul and John and many other places throughout Scripture are uh, speaking more about afterlife, right? You want a 25-cent theological word? This is soteriological thinking. There you go. You're welcome. Uh, impress your friends. Uh, this is about soteriology, right? This is what the end of, like, end of my life, where do I go when I'm dead? Salvation. Where, this is heaven talk. Where am I at the end of my life? That's what Paul's talking about. You don't earn your way into heaven. You don't earn your way into God's graces. That's what, that's what John's talking about too. That's not, you don't earn your way into God's presence. That's God's gift and God's grace to all of us. What James is talking about is the necessary unity between our faith or our beliefs, our internal workings of our faith and action in this life on this side of heaven. 
When he asked the question, can such a faith save us? You look at his example there when, when he talks about the person that is poor and is needy, that is, that is cold and that is hungry. And if you believe in your heart that somebody walks by and says, go in peace, brother and sister. Go in peace. I hope that you're well fed. I believe that you should be well fed, that you should keep warm. What good is that belief if I don't actually live it or act it in that moment? How is that person saved if I just believe that they should be taken care of? That's what James is getting at, is how is our faith active now? It's not a substitute for faith. Works are not a substitute for, for faith. It's not a way to earn God's favor, but rather the actions of our life reveal the faith that we have inside. Our actions reveal the beliefs that we have about God's love, who God is, and who we are called to be. So how are lives changed? If we look at the life of Jesus, if we look at the, the words of James here, how are lives changed? Lives are changed by active faith. Lives are changed by active faith, our own lives and the lives around us. This isn't a statement about where you end up when you're dead. It's a statement about real spiritual, physical, and emotional salvation now on this side of heaven. It's a faith that's not content with simply being a believer. We're not just believers. Because let's face it, I could believe all the right things as Marcus Borg said, and still be unchanged. My life could look no different. The lives around me could be unchanged if I don't live out that faith. I could believe all day long that I should be a good and godly husband. But if I don't act it, I am not it. If I believe in my head all day that I should be a good and godly husband, but I don't act those things out, then I am not a good and godly husband. I could believe all day uh, the virtue of raising my child in the faith, helping them to know God and God's love at a young age so that shapes and forms their life. I could believe all day in the virtue of raising my son in a household of faith, but if I don't actually live it, then what good is that belief? What good is that understanding? I could believe all day in the virtue of being generous with my life and with my things. But if I'm not that, then what good is that belief? I could believe that people should be fed and I should serve others. I could believe all kinds of things. But if I don't live it, what good is it? That's what James is getting at. The mission of the church is to carry on the saving activity of Jesus. Not the saving beliefs of Jesus, but the saving activity of Jesus, the life-changing work of Jesus, not the life-changing beliefs of Jesus. That's the mission of the church. And as individuals, we pursue that life change that only can come from God's spirit, that comes through Jesus. And we commit ourselves to creating space in our own lives and in the lives of people around us for that change 
to take place. So I don't simply want to be a believer. I want to be a disciple. There's a difference between a believer and a disciple. A believer, it all stays inside, but a disciple actively follows somebody. They're walking in their footsteps. They're learning. They're soaking up the wisdom, but they are also repeating the actions of the teacher. They're learning how to live by modeling their lives after the teacher's lives. That's what a disciple does. And when the teacher is there no longer, the disciples live on that life. They live out those actions. They, they, they share that wisdom, not only with the words of their mouth, but with their actions. I don't simply want to be a believer. I want to be a disciple. That's what an active faith looks like. Lives are transformed through active faith. But how do we activate it? There's lots of good things in this world that we could do, lots of ways that we could give, lots of things that we could do that would be considered good things. Like, how do we activate? It seems a little overwhelming. How do we activate our faith? Here at First Methodist Mansfield, we express it this way, that our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ who will love God, love others, and serve the world. It's that simple. I mean, there's a lot contained within those three things, but it's that simple. This is what a disciple, this is how we understand what a disciple is. A disciple is somebody who loves God, loves others, and serves the world. That's the essence of a disciple, actively pursuing that relationship with God, growing in deeper relationship with others, and then serving the world around us. Now, we didn't just make this up. There's some really smart people that work here, but we didn't just make this up. Um... We stole this from Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 22. That's our second verse. You can flip over there. Um, Matthew chapter 22, verse 35. Uh, we find Jesus teaching, answering questions. Verse 34, oh, sorry, 35. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. People of faith in Jesus' time had lots of laws to help them be active in their faith to help them actively live out their faith, to help them live in a faithful relationship with God and to be in faithful relationship with each other. Lots of laws to help them do it. 613 to be exact. 613 laws to guide and define their lives as people of faith. And an expert in, one of those in all of those 613 laws asked Jesus if he can pick out one of those 613 that's the most important. Which one has the most significance for our life? Which one brings the most joy to, uh, to God, Jesus? Out of all these laws, we know they're all important, of course, of course. But which one, which one should we be most attentive to? And Jesus answers by basically saying, I can do you one better than that. I'm not just going to give you the most important commandment. 
But I can actually sum up all 613 commandments into two. Moses gave you 10, I can give you two. Everything that you know about your faith, everything that you pursue to be in faithful relationship with God and with each other, I can boil down to two things, and that's love God and love each other. We got to 613 because we got confused on what does, what does love God actually mean? What do you mean love my neighbor? Like what if they do this? Do I have to love them then? We have 613 laws to, to, because we had lots of questions about what it means to love God and love each other. And yet Jesus is saying, it's not that those aren't important, but I can, all the law, all the prophets, everything you read in scripture comes down to these two things, love God and love each other. If you can get that right, you got the whole thing right, right? Just stop reading, go home, you got it, right? <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. How are lives changed through an active faith? Well, what does an active faith look, look like? An active faith is somebody who's loving God, loving others, and serving the world. We activate our faith by actively and patiently and consistently Pursuing an ever-deepening relationship with God and with each other. And then looking for the opportunities to express that love in very real service to the world. I'm going to say that again. I want you to write those three words down. Actively, patiently, and consistently. Actively, patiently, consistently. Pursuing an ever-deepening relationship with God and with each other and serving one another, looking for those opportunities to express that love and service to the world. We put that mission statement everywhere in our church. We put it in our communication. We put it everywhere. We want to see it everywhere. One, we like what it says a lot, but it's there to remind ourselves of the incredibly significant work that we have been called to. Every day when I walk in and I read that and I see that, I'm reminded of what I am called to be and what I'm called to help others be. A changed life that is helping others find change in their life. And we want to pursue this work with everything. Everything. Not we, just those that work here at the church. We, as people of faith, we want to pursue this work with everything that we have. Not because we're trying to earn God's love, but because we are desperate to show God's love with our life. And there's a kingdom at stake. There are lives at stake here. That might sound like hyperbole, but you might remember if you were here last week and you heard Kyle's story. When I say lives are at stake here, I mean it. People's lives are at stake. We do this because there is something important happening in our lives and something important that can happen in the lives around us. We are called to this work. My life, personally, has been changed because of the church. I don't have a rock-bottom story. My, my faith story isn't all that dramatic. I'm not a perfect person, but, but the church has always been there. It's always been a part of my life, and it's been a significant part of my life. It's constantly been there to encourage me and also to challenge me, to shape me and form me into the person I am today. 
And it's not done yet. The church is still a very vital part of my life and will continue to be so. And I hope so for my family as well and my son as he grows up. Kyle, as we saw from the video last week, his life has changed because of the church. Kathy, same thing, a life that has changed because of the church. And that's just, that's just two people that we see in these videos. That's two people. But those are two changed lives. And how many lives have been changed because of those two? How many lives currently are being changed and shaped because of those two changed lives? How many lives into the future will be shaped and changed because of those two lives? And then multiply that over and over and over again because all of you are here as well. Changed lives that are investing in other lives, affecting other lives, changing other lives. How many more Lives can be changed. How much more can the world change? Because we remain committed to be focused on our mission and to pursue that change that comes from Christ, actively living our faith. And as we continue to be changed lives, committed to changing lives, that's my prayer for us to think of those ways and those three things that we are actively, patiently, and consistently pursuing God and others and then looking for the opportunities to share that love and service to the world. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for your transformative presence in our lives, for the way in which you have sought us out, God, for the way in which you give your presence even when we don't deserve it. God, I pray for each person in service today, people upstairs in the Well Cafe, people down here in the chapel, people in the sanctuary, people all over this world heading to churches, sacred places of faith, God, that your truth and your grace is spoken into their lives, that it is softening hearts, that people are pursuing you and the change that comes from you, but also, God, pursuing an active faith that lives out your love and shares it with the lives around us. We thank you for the call on our lives, God, to do that. We thank you for the honor that it is to partner with you in this work of changing your world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we conclude today, I want to share a couple uh, announcements with you. Um, uh, upstairs is probably weirded out because we're still on video, but hello, this is supposed to happen. Uh, <laughs> first thing I want you to do is remember our Guatemala team as they head out to Guatemala uh, to, to serve there. If you don't know what Zoe is, Zoe is an orphan empowerment program that we have partnered with for a very long time, continue to do so. You as a church have been so generous, hundreds of thousands of dollars we have given to Zoe, and we have witnessed firsthand the impact that Zoe has had on the lives of children and families for generations to come. That work that you do, many of you have gone on a Zoe trip. Many of you have given to Zoe trip. I just love how some, how, how both of those things have uh, contributed to changing. I'm, we're talking generations after generation after generation after generation of families, of people, of kids. Lives are changed. It's a beautiful program. Uh, and we thank you for always being a part of that and praying for our team and praying for those kids, their names, 
specifically that's, that's on that magnet. The thing I want to share with you is that um, today uh, we're celebrating Colors for Cancer. I know many people in this room, uh, people all over the world, um, have uh, experienced the devastating effects of cancer in their lives, whether it's directly, uh, personally you've experienced it, or with those that you love and other family members. We want you to know that you're not alone in that and that we are constantly praying for, for you and for those that are suffering from cancer and those that, um, that have committed their lives to helping to treat that. In the atrium, which is in our sanctuary building right across there, we have all kinds of God is Big Enough bracelets in every single color that represents um, every cancer there is. And so if you personally have been touched by that, um, if you've experienced those devastating effects, if you have other family members, uh, please stop by the atrium and, and pick up one or a bunch um, of these in the color that, that you'd like, uh, not only for yourself, but to share with those that you think that that might bring hope and joy and peace to. And so I'd, I'd hope you do that. Would you now go from this place as people not only committed to believing in the love and the grace of God, but people that are committed to sharing that light in a dark world so that your life is constantly sanctified, changed in that grace, but also the lives around you are as well. Go in the name of Jesus and go in peace. Amen.